This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. The mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. Between a moment of mindfulness, which is free of suffering, and full awakening, which is an ongoing condition of no suffering, lies this middle ground of the pure mind, where the mind is temporarily, but in an ongoing moment-to-moment way, free of defilements, and therefore free of suffering. If defilements of mind cause suffering, and mindfulness, or a moment of mindfulness, is a moment free of defilements, then it is the continuity of moments of mindfulness that will result in the experience of the pure mind with enough continuity and enough strength that it can be recognized for what it is. Coming to a center like this or coming on a retreat like this, where we leave our familiar friends, family, and our distractions, and the usual supports in our life. We seclude ourselves physically from a lot which causes us to be wound up, anxious, fretful, concerned, fearful, being away from the news and being away from the interactions of personal relationships and work demands. And just being physically secluded is, for six weeks or three months or more, would be a great relief. But I'm sure you've noticed that even though the body is secluded from its usual sources of pleasure and pain, the mind is quite happy to be back at home, back at work, (laughs) fully, fully distracted and entangled in all the usual suspect activities. And so it 
takes something other than just being away from something more than physical seclusion to bring the mind to a mental seclusion. Because a mental seclusion is the mind free of its, away from its, or secluded from that which causes it to be tormented. When the Buddha discovered, or realized really, the, the way things are and codified his understandings in the Four Noble Truths, the Fourth Noble Truth, he, he laid out a path for overcoming suffering and the causes of suffering. And that path is essentially three trainings. It is the training in, initially in sila, or purifying our intentions to speak and our intentions to act, purifying those intentions of the defilements, overcoming those very grossest forms of defilements, and allowing us the, or giving us the opportunity to, to experience really blamelessness and some degree of harmony in our relationship, both within ourselves and in relationship to others. The second training is a purification of mind, temporarily putting aside the obsessive defilements of the mind, not just our intentions and acting them out, but being able to subdue them in the mind And this purification of mind gives us access to the happiness of tranquility. And it takes a third, more subtle, yet more powerful training to overcome the most subtle forms of defilements, the latent or the dormant defilements. And this is through the development of right understanding, purifying our understanding, cultivating wisdom or knowledge, which, as it purifies our understanding, allows us to begin to access the happiness of peace. It is this second training that I want to speak about tonight, the purification of mind. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche said. It is a turbulent vortex of thoughts, whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. And this mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, triggered off by circumstances such as an unexpected meeting with an adversary or a friend. And unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred and attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprint. However strong these thoughts may seem, they're just thoughts, and they will eventually dissolve. And just as clouds form, last for a while, and then dissolve back into the empty sky, so too deluded thoughts arise, remain for a while, and then vanish in the emptiness of the mind. 
if we could believe that and outweigh that temporary appearance of those clouds in the mind, those deluded thoughts in the mind, we would see for ourselves that they do indeed dissolve. And when they leave the mind, the mind is pure, undefiled and therefore without cause for suffering. But when these visitors to the mind, known as defilements, are knocking at the door or have moved in, we suffer. They are the cause of our suffering. Whatever suffering you have felt today or any time in your life is because of a visiting state of mind. Something that came knocking at the door, it was let in and tormented you. Because these visitors are so powerful, they're powerfully conditioned habits of mind. They have become what appears to be our default setting. And rather than a visitor to the mind, they often feel like full-time residents to us. In order to be free of them, in order to uh, issue them a, a temporary restraining order and eventually evict them from your, the heart of your mind, we need to begin to recognize them and uh, understand them and exercise some restraint and then come to understand them in a way that allows us to be free of them. Tonight I want to speak about how to work with these visitors to the mind. And there's a five-step process that works. And the first step is to recognize them, to be able to name them, to be able to, 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 to recognize them when they appear in your experience. And then, secondly, to exercise some restraint, meaning not to act them out. And if we can do that, then we have a chance to steady our attention on them. If we reframe our understanding, this is the third step, reframe our understanding that when the defilements are present in our heart, that is the very time and place Practice mindfulness. It's not as if we have to get rid of the defilements and be totally clean and pure and happy and then practice mindfulness. We should understand that the most difficult, challenging, tormenting states of mind is the very place for establishing your mindfulness. So we recognize them, we exercise some restraint from acting them out, we reframe our understanding to know that this is the very place for engaging them. And secondly, we receive their uniqueness. We taste them through mindfulness. Through being mindful of them, we come to know their unique flavor, 
their sabhava, if you will. And when we do that, when we can steady our attention, mindfully endure them, because they're tormenting you, remember, we will discover, or we will realize that, primarily and firstly, they don't last. And that is an invaluable knowledge to gain. When you can steady your attention on that which is tormenting you and see it come to an end, first of all, there's tremendous relief. But more importantly, the mind has learned the way to the end of that suffering. Whatever your particular default settings and visitors to the mind are. And the more consistently you can recognize, exercise some restraint, reframe your understanding, and be mindful of them, the, the more powerful the habit of enduring them and seeing them come to an end becomes. And with that knowledge, that, that personally experienced knowledge that all of these torments that that bother you, they come to an end. With that knowledge, confidence in yourself, the practice, and the possibilities grows. Rather than feeling defeated or that somehow these defilements, these hindrances, are somehow an indication that you're just not able. You're just not going to make it. You're incompetent. You're unable. You're, you're just a wimp. That's, to the contrary, what it means is that's the place. You pay attention. Your confidence grows on your understanding of them. There, it's a, well, The only thing that makes us suffer is the defilements. So, let's take a look. The first of these visitors to the mind is sloth, which, of course, have probably been visiting some of you today. You know, it's that state of mind where mind's idle. I can't say you're idle, but the mind is idle, where the mind is just tired. It just doesn't want to engage. It just doesn't want to even remember the instructions or engage the instructions, or it doesn't care. Familiar? Right. Well, it's hard to believe that sloth is a defilement that torments you. Mostly, when sloth comes, it feels pretty comfortable. I mean, unless you're practicing. But, you know, if you can just indulge in your sloth and and just take a nap and just lay around, where's the suffering? The suffering comes in the strength of that sloth to pull you into that 
uncaring, unwilling, dull state of mind more frequently, more strongly, and, and you can't get out. So what is, the, what is the, the antidote, so to speak, to sloth? Universally, the first, in many spiritual traditions, is to reflect on your death. Sometimes a human life looks like a long time. But once you get into practice and you see just how challenging it is to really turn the momentum of the mind around, you realize what a short time we have to do the job that's got to be done. And when we reflect on the fact that you know, our time is only running out, and we don't know really how long we have. We may think we're going to work, retire, and then really practice, or, well, we're here for this retreat, but it's not going so well. Maybe I'll do it next year. And really, you don't know whether you'll be around next year. And so to really bring that, a sense of urgency to now is the time. Whatever, no matter how sleepy, no matter how lazy, no matter how heavy the mind is, now is the time. But akin to uh, sloth is torpor. And torpor is different than sloth. Sloth is more like laziness or idleness or an unwillingness. Torpor is a kind of heaviness or a, a thickness of mind that even if you want to be, the mind is so congealed that it just doesn't, you can't, you can't work with it. It's like cold clay, just can't be worked with until it gets really warmed up and then it becomes much more pliable. Well, the mind is like that when it's really cold and hasn't been worked with. It's hard to work with it. There's many ways of working to arouse some energy in, in the mind. Again, considering just the rarity of the opportunity to hear, to practice, to realize the teachings. Not only the preciousness of a retreat place like this, but just the rarity of a human birth. The Buddha, in one of his uh, exhortations to use your time wisely, acknowledged that the, the chance of being born in the human realm, where you can hear the Dharma and practice it, is rarer than a blind turtle at the bottom of the ocean coming up for a breath of air every hundred years putting its head through a wooden yoke that was floating on the ocean. Not likely. I've watched those turtles down in Maui, and it's like they don't come up very often. If it was only once every hundred years, they're pretty small, the ocean's pretty big, and a wooden yoke, almost zero chance. Your chance of being born a human being is better than that. What does that mean? We are already born in this realm. We are already hearing and appreciating the teachings of the Dharma and have this opportunity. Next time we may not be so lucky. 
And so to use that reflection to make now the time to practice. I was reading a a book that we've recently had translated from the Burmese into English on practicing Vipassana. And in this book, Mahasi Sayadaw lists, oh, I don't know, dozens of reflections to help brighten the mind. Because when the mind is bright, when there's a certain cheerfulness in the mind, a certain spiritual cheerfulness, pamuji it's called, uh, then we're more willing to engage, even if the mind is, is heavy. And one of the reflections, and this could only come from not only Burma, but anyway, one of the ways to activate cheerfulness in the mind, he says, is by reflecting on the suffering in hell. Be cheerful, reflect on the suffering in hell. That'll, that'll really cheer you up. And when I read that, I said, what's he talking about? You know, when you, usually when you think about the suffering of hell, how cold it is, hot, and how, you know, sharp and slicing, and it's just, it's just beings in hell just don't have much opportunity to, to, to be free of suffering. Well, when you reflect on that, You can be happy that you're not there. We've all been there. We've been in hellish states of mind where, you know, we're just burning up with anger or we're feeling the, the isolation of the coldness of ice being isolated or the sharp cutting barbs of people that are just kind of critical. And so we know what, how the mind feels when it's caught in hell. You're not there. Maybe momentarily throughout the day, but on the whole, most of our day is not spent there. Let that be kind of an inspiration for taking the opportunity to practice. Sloth and torpor are long-term visitors to the mind, but they don't live here. And if we can begin to recognize them and not take a nap, exercise some restraint, understand that when we feel either sloth or torpor, that's the place to be mindful, to feel what sloth and torpor feel like in the body, in the mind, what happens to the quality of the mind, the quality of attention. You will see, and many of you, I'm sure, I know for myself too, have in the Willingness to engage sloth and torpor and just to note it, to be with it, to be mindful of it can be just with it and with it and with it and with it and in an instant see it disappear completely. That's when you see that, when you, when you endure that mindfully, it's not pleasant and you see it come to an end just like that. That's knowledge. That's a, that's a valuable knowledge that you have just gained about the nature of the mind, the nature of the defilements, and the nature of practice. Because you have seen the end of that suffering. And if you do that again and again and again and again, the mind will know with unshakable confidence that it can 
withstand the, the suffering of that defilement. That knowledge, that confidence is not gainable any other way. No one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Ramana Maharshi says. Perseverance. It's just persevering in the face of these tormenting defilements. The second, or third, sloth, torpor, the second, third uh, hindrance, obstacle to freedom, happiness, is doubt. Doubt manifests in a couple of ways. One way that doubt manifests, so that you can begin to recognize, oh, this is what doubt feels like or does, is when your practice is wavering. You know, you're really determined, you practice really diligently with a lot of confidence, a lot of energy for half the day. And then... You know, kind of wear out, and you got to take the afternoon off, and then come late. You know, you get inspired by the time of talking. You extend yourself till a couple hours later into the evening, and then you're too tired to get up in the morning before breakfast. So you kind of sleep in. That's wavering practice. When you find your practice wavering on and off, strong week, strong week. Look and see if there is some kinds of thoughts about questioning the value or how to practice or what's right to be doing now because it's these kind of thoughts conditioning this kind of practice which lets you know, which helps you to recognize that doubt is present in the mind. There's a uh, chameleon that on Maui where I live called the Jackson's Chameleon. And it is, you know, it's probably six or eight inches long with a five or six inch tail. And it's a chameleon, so it changes color. It can be bright green or it can be yellowish green or brown or whatever. And it's, it looks like a dinosaur, a miniature dinosaur. It's got these things on its head and big scales on its back. And it's, it's really fearsome looking. But it's, it's small. When it walks... It is the personification of doubt. <laughs> because when it's about to take a step, it kind of, it, 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 you know, it, it reaches and backs up, reaches and backs up, reaches and backs up, reaches and backs up, and then just slowly and tentatively reaches and places its foot. The first of four. And when, <laughs> and when it's about to move the next leg, it does the same thing. It, it faints and reaches and backs and backs. And then it takes a second step. It is such a great display of what appears to be the doubting mind. Now, they're not always lost in doubt. I've seen them move pretty quick. But if your practice is a Jackson chameleon, well, recognize that. There's a, a second way that doubt manifests in our practice and when I first read this in, in the book that I'm referring to, the Mahasi Sayadaw book, I had to give it some thought, just what, what does that mean? Doubt manifests as procrastination. Putting off till later the practice 
you could or should be doing now. Whether it's feeling tired and saying, you know what, I've got to go take a nap. I'll practice later. Or you're dealing with, you know, discomfort in the body. And, you know, it's only 10 minutes into the sitting and you say, well, I think I'll adjust my posture so that I don't have to deal with it for the whole time. I'll deal with that later. Or, you know, it's near the end of the sitting and, well, you end early because, well, you can catch up later. There's, there's so many ways that we put off confronting the present moment, dealing with the present moment, recognizing the present moment, because we procrastinate. We put it off. We think we can do it later. Later in the day, later in the sitting, later in our life. Why would we do that? Well, when we look at what allows us to do that, there is often this doubt. Doubt about the need for practice, doubt about the way of practice, doubt about the benefit of practice, doubt about our teachers, doubt about ourselves. There's all kinds of things that we can doubt. And when we get caught up in thinking about and trying to figure out the answer to all of our doubts, we can be sure that we're lost in doubt. We're caught. There's a, Miley was just telling me, there's a Pali word called takahetu, which refers to the wisdom that is acquired through thinking and logic. You know, when you think a lot and you, you kind of consider this and consider that and you figure things out, you know, you can come to some understanding. But in the Pali language, the root verb of that word means to doubt. Trying to figure things out through thinking is rooted in doubting. When we meet doubt in our practice, you cannot think your way out of doubt. You can borrow some doubt from your teacher. You know, ask a question, they give you an answer, temporarily it relieves your doubt, you continue to practice. Of course. You can uh, overcome your doubt temporarily by, you know, when you're faced with a challenging, difficult situation in your practice and you think, geez, guy must have had to deal with that before. Kamala must have had to deal with that before. I guess I can. I I might as well. And so you borrow their confidence and it supports you to continue. Or you ask questions. These can, can... and give you some temporary, a tr- temporary transfusion of confidence. But in the end, you will have to look at your own doubt and practice through it. And by practicing through it, rather than thinking it out, is where we learn to overcome doubt. Doubt, remember, this confusion about what to do, whether to do, when to do, how to do, is just a visitor to the mind. When it's there, visiting, you suffer. If you can stay with it and see the end of doubt, even once, the mind knows the way to the end of suffering. So important to gain that knowledge, knowing that you don't really have to figure it out. All you have to do is keep being mindful 
of that experience of doubt, how it feels in the body, how it feels in the mind, what it does to the thoughts, what it does to your intention, your confidence, just to really see, to know experientially what doubt is like, what it does to you, what it does to your practice. And when you see it come to an end, not because you've figured it out, but because it, like everything else that arises in your experience, is impermanent, that knowledge is invaluable. A couple of years ago, I was reminded of something I said years ago. I'd done my first retreat at the first three-month retreat, which wasn't held here. It was held in an old Catholic monastery in Maine. And soon after that, this, this center was bought, and I came on staff here. And one of my first days on staff, I was up in the attic of the Catskills insulating the roof, insulating the ceilings over the rooms. And I was there with uh, Rodney Smith, who was another teacher. He was on staff at the time. And we were having, now remember, I've done one retreat. We were having a discussion about Nibbana, as if we knew anything about Nibbana. But nevertheless, I said to him, he reminded me recently, that I said to him with utter, absolute conviction, I have no doubt that in this lifetime I will realize the Dharma. Of course, I had no idea what I was saying. (laughs) I was totally ignorant of what was going to be required in order to realize that. But I had no doubt about my aspiration. Ten years later, I was practicing in Burma, and I never felt doubt those first ten years. I never had any doubt. I was riding on the confidence, the clarity of my aspiration. But the way doubt arose in my practice was as a form of self-pity. You know, you're doing walking practice, you're really dull, you're being tormented by, you know, your personal history, and, you know. And I never, I never, I never thought I wallowed in self-pity. That just wasn't my personality type, I guess. But I kept seeing this habit of mind. Oh, poor me. I can't do this practice. I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too Western. <laughs> I'm too stupid. I, you know, I did too many drugs. My mind is fried. <laughs> I didn't do enough drugs. <laughs> what Whatever, you know, I said, you know, I, I, I would, I had no shame. I'd use any excuse why I couldn't do the practice, why I wasn't going to succeed. That was, re- that was really a form of doubt because every time it arose and I didn't see it, didn't recognize it, I backed off. I just, I can't do it. So I'd go space out, go talk to somebody for a little while, go take a nap, and then I'd realize wait a minute, I'm just unplugging from practice. And that's what doubt does. It unplugs you from practice. It keeps your intention, your willingness, your energy from moving forward, engaging the moment. Because somehow we think, it's kind of an assumption in the mind when doubt's there, I've got to figure it out. I've got to figure out what I've got to really do. 
I've got to figure out whether to walk or sit now. I've got to really figure out whether to practice fabricated mindfulness or unfabricated mindfulness, whether to just rest in the nature of mind or whether to note or whether to... <laughs> do I note with a word or do I just note with a recognition? Or You can't figure it out. There's no figuring out to be done. You just have to practice. But it's, it's really interesting because if you just persevere, you know, like Ramana Maharshi said, those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. If you just persevere, even in the face of doubt, which is really hard because doubt, remember, pulls the plug on your confidence. You have no confidence. Keep practicing. We can practice with no confidence, but we must. And when we persevere in the face of the suffering of no confidence, because when you have no confidence, that's suffering. That is real suffering, because you have to keep practicing. And if you do, you will see the end of doubt. Yes, it's just a momentary end of doubt. You're doubting, you're doubting, you're struggling, you're struggling, you're struggling. You space out for a while, and then you're back, and it's like, no doubt. No doubt? No doubt about it. Hey, okay, so the mind has seen the way to the end of doubt. See it again and again and again and again. In time, when doubt arises in the mind, it doesn't last because you know you can, you can endure it. And you know you can see the end of it. You know it'll come to an end. You don't get identified with it. And it is this disidentification with these visitors to the mind that is the real place of freedom. Seclusion of mind, where the mind can be secluded from, well, the mind has evicted these visitors. Or maybe I should say, issued them a restraining order. They'll be back. But at least you're keeping them at bay for a while. So we have sloth and torpor, we have doubt. A third frequent visitor to the mind for many of us is some form of aversion. There are three gradients, I guess you'd say, of, of aversion. And the first is striking out, getting angry, saying something, doing something. You know, somebody's uh, you know, bothering you and you stand there and you look at them with a glaring, seething frustration. That's acting out, that, that's violent. That, that's really uh, a gross form of, of, of aversion. Or you hope that they see you so that they'll stop doing what they're doing. You know? With metta. And, <laughs> or, or if you're not striking out, sometimes we, we, we realize, oh, it's not so skillful to act out, and we internalize it. We turn it in on ourselves, and we get frustrated. We get depressed. We get disappointed. We get um, despairing all forms of aversion, an unwillingness to engage. It's kind of a turning away from the experience, an unwillingness to engage the experience, and we get disappointed, we get frustrated, we get despairing, all forms of aversion. And the third way is to, to, to push away from the, the unpleasant experience. It, it is unpleasantness that habitually conditions 
aversion. Okay? Pushing it away, we get critical, we get cynical, we get irritated, we get fearful. They're all forms of mentally distancing ourselves from the unpleasantness of what's actually what you're actually experiencing. A few years ago, uh, <clears throat> after the election, I realized that my challenge for the next four years was going to be dealing with cynicism. My own just outrageous cynicism. It's like, give me a break. You know, I'm living in the wrong country, a wrong planet, I guess. I don't know. And what is that? What is that cynicism or that criticism? It's, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. And so we just get whinging, whining, irritated, all forms of aversion. So beginning to recognize that these are suffering states of mind, exercising some restraint where we're not acting them out. We're not writing letters to the editor every day. We're not writing notes to our the yogis that are bothering us, we're not hounding the staff with all of our perceptions of things that don't meet our preferences. Exercising some restraint. But taking the next moment to understand that we don't have to fix that which bothers us, that which makes us irritated, that which depresses us, that which causes us fear. We don't have to fix it. That experience itself is the place to be mindful, to establish mindfulness. Last night, Sally was speaking about the four foundations of mindfulness, the places you establish your mindfulness. And she'll be speaking about, last night she spoke about physical sensations, the body. Later she'll be speaking about these mental states as the very foundation for establishing your mindfulness. And so when you feel angry, you feel irritated, by someone, something, some behavior, some sound, something that the kitchen is doing or not doing. Welcome that. That's, that's the very place. It's, it's loud and clear. You, you know you're, you've got some tangible, very predominant experiences there. To be mind. Nothing subtle about that. You don't have to look for something to note. There it is. Engage it. And what does that mean to engage it? It means to be mindful of it. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? Mostly we know what unpleasant physical sensations feel like, don't we? Pain, we know. You know, we know what unpleasant physical is like. Do you know what unpleasant mental is like prior to aversion to it? Before you get angry or irritated, and the mind is feeling unpleasant. Can you notice that? What is that like? Have you ever consciously acknowledged this is an unpleasant mental feeling without having aversion to it? If you're mindful, if you, as you practice mindful, as you begin to really look carefully at what is going on in the mind in relationship to that which bugs you, irritates you, causes you to be fearful, irritated, or whatever, angry, then you can begin to see, you can begin to catch the, that subtle whiff of 
unpleasantness in the mind before you get fearful, before you get irritated, before you get frustrated or depressed. But it takes a very careful, sensitive, just really moment to moment noticing this moment, the next moment, the next moment, physical or mental, whatever it is. And we'll begin to recognize. You know, really, there's only four things happening. There's pleasant and unpleasant, physical or mental. And you make this matrix, pleasant and unpleasant on top, physical and mental on the side, and you've got four boxes. That's all that's happening. Take your pick. You don't have to, you don't have, to have a very big noting vocabulary. You know, unpleasant mental. Pleasant mental. Unpleasant physical. Pleasant physical. Of course, there's varieties within that, but that's a good place to start. Again, I was in the monastery in Burma. I'd been practicing for a couple of years, and there was another Western monk there. And he'd been there a little longer than I had, and I guess he was a little bit lost interest, or I don't know, wasn't quite wasn't in the same place, didn't have quite the same determination as I did, and he wanted to talk. And I was his target. And, you know, in the monastery, it's a little different than here at the meditation center. In the monastery, you know, you're there for years on end, and, you know, you end up, you know, speaking a little bit around mealtimes and things. Well, this guy would come down to my room to talk to me, or I should say to talk at me. Because even when I told him I'm not interested in talking, he would still come. I would lock the door. He would just stand outside the door and talk through the screen. It got to the point where I would hear his door open down at the other end of the hall, and I'd get angry. I'd contract, just anticipating, oh, God, here he comes. I tried everything. I tried just getting angry and telling him, I'm really irritated, don't come, don't bother, don't, don't, talk, don't talk at me. I ignored him with seething frustration. I reminded him of the rule of noble silence. He didn't care. I tried to negotiate a time limit. Five minutes each time. He didn't care. Only before lunch. He didn't care. I got wise. I started practicing mindfulness. I'll do metta. May you be happy in your room. (laughs) Didn't work. You know what actually worked? Feeling how unpleasant it was. It's unpleasant. Somebody's talking at you. It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant physically. It's unpleasant mentally. When I could open to, this is really unpleasant. It was okay. I mean, that's the paradoxical thing about mindfulness practice. You know, when you get a deep tissue massage, you know, they're really in there and they're just kind of jamming their thumbs into the most painful part of your back, you know, and it's excruciatingly painful and it feels good. Mindfulness is kind of like that, you know. You can be, you can be kind of zooming in on the most unpleasant mental, physical stuff, and it's like that feels good. <laughs> I, I mean, if it wasn't that, I mean, you know, forget it. We wouldn't be interested. But there is this this kind of a rewards along the way. <laughs> you know, the end of suffering is feeling good about your pain. <laughs> we should never underestimate the power of mindfulness. 
to bring immediate relief. It does. If we can see, in this case, the end of frustration, the end of disappointment, the end of irritation, the end of anger. Not because we fixed it or we told them off or we wrote the note, but because we endure it. Feeling that unpleasantness, fully aware, mindful, as Sally mentioned last night, fully aware, clearly comprehending, and mindful. This is unpleasant. Still unpleasant. Still unpleasant. It's gone. Yet that knowledge, that insight knowledge, because you see the end of that suffering, is invaluable. Welcome those defilements. They're already visiting you in your home. But see them to the door. See when they leave so that you gain that confidence, so your mind really becomes confident in knowing this mind can endure this suffering and it can see the end and recognize the end of this suffering. Sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness. Another visitor to the mind. The mind, the Buddha said, is difficult to control. Is there any doubt about that? The mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly, it moves and lands wherever it pleases. It is good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. Well, when I read that, I said, the mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly, it moves and lands wherever it pleases. I didn't believe it. I went to Upandita, I ran over, and I said, look at this. It says here the mind can go anywhere it wants to. And... Uh, you can't stop it. Is that true? And he said, what's your experience? What's your experience? The mind, it can go anywhere. At any time. True? Yeah. We see it. If you're paying attention, if you're, if you're not in denial, you can see the mind. And it will eventually in your path of awakening, it will go everywhere. When the mind is visited by restlessness, there's the obvious forms of restlessness, just, you know, the mind is just wandering. It's just thought after thought after thought after thought after thought. In fact, the length of your wandering mind is an indication of the degree of restlessness. The longer the wander, the greater the restlessness. The shorter the wander, even though they may be more frequent, the less the restlessness. You know, when you begin practicing, you know, you sit down, you have a good sitting, your mind only wandered two or three times. Yeah, it only wandered two or three times, but for 15 minutes each. <laughs> That's a restless mind. Later on, you really get good. You know, your practice, your mindfulness is really built up. You sit down, your mind wanders a hundred times in a single sitting. Not bad. Only wandered for, you know, 30 seconds each time. That's good. Much better to wander a hundred times in a sitting and to know that than to only wander twice. Kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? But when, you're, when the mind is full of restlessness, you don't see the wandering mind. 
There's another form of restlessness, or another manifestation of restlessness, and that is when you feel like you want to jump out of your skin, and you cannot sit still. You know, it's just like, and an interesting thing about that is it's not really painful, but it is a tremendous amount of suffering. It's not really painful. It's like, you know, it's not like excruciating pain. In fact, it's just, it's just you can't stand it. <laughs> you know, he just want he just want get me out of this body. Okay. One of my um, one of my challenges in the early years of my practice, and this was the first fifteen years, was was restlessness because of over striving. We can try too hard, and it'll make the mind restless. It'll condition restlessness into the mind. Now, how do we try too hard? One is being overzealous. We're just, we're just too gung-ho. I mean, we, we want to be gung-ho in a balanced way. But when we're gung-ho in a gung-ho way, <laughs> that's too much. You know, and with that excess of energy, we don't land on the object. The mindfulness, our attention overshoots. It just goes beyond the object. It doesn't, it doesn't receive anything. It doesn't really feel anything. When you're trying hard and you can't really feel what the experience is, look to see if you're trying too hard. Because in that trying too hard, we overshoot the present moment's experience. The objects are unclear. We're having a hard time in practice. We can't sustain our continuity. What we're failing to do is note that striving mental state. You know, the instructions, for those of you who've been here for six weeks, know, and for those of you who just came, will soon hear. The instructions are to be with your primary object, or predominant objects that call your attention away from the primary object. Okay. Now imagine this. You're trying really hard. You're really diligent. You're paying. You're really on top of it. And you're trying to be with the breath. What's the predominant object? The breath? <laughs> no. That's not the predominant. The predominant object is your intention to be with the breath. And if that's not what you're noting, you're missing the primary or the predominant object. And so you can try harder and harder and harder to get to the breath, and you'll miss it because the strength of your intention is overpowering it. Oh. Okay. So now we have to have continuous or continuity of intention, but not too much intention. Because too much intention overshadows or overpowers, is stronger than the experience that you're trying to receive with your open, receptive, mindful awareness. That kind of restlessness is very tricky because we, we, we want to try. We want to be diligent. We want to be you know, sincere and continuous. And you know, sometimes it actually interferes with being mindful. If the body is tense, 
and I say to you, relax the body, you would know what to do. You know, relax the body. Okay, we just relax. Okay. Now, relax your mind. <laughs> what, what do you do to relax your mind? You go... <laughs> what do you do to relax your mind? When your mind is too tense and you're overshooting the object and you're feeling very restless and the object isn't clear, how do you relax your mind? It's not so obvious, is it? Experiment a little bit with relax the body, relax the mind. Pay attention. Pay attention in a gentle way to the present moment's experience. For example, as if you were receiving or listening or receiving the sounds of music or the sounds in the environment. You know, just listen to the ambient sound of the room for a minute. Now try harder to hear this ambient sound of the room. <laughs> it's like you squinch up your ear hoping to hear it. Try harder. No. To hear more clearly, to receive more sensitively, we kind of back off. We open up. We actually relax the mind. So too in developing mindfulness. If the mind is tense, relaxing the mind means to soften, to open, to receive more carefully, more sensitively, more, more in a more subtle, refined way. And that's often what's needed, the adjustment that's needed, the, the, the the antidote, if you will, to restlessness of the mind. Soften. Relax the body. Relax the mind. Allow the experience to come to you, trusting that you'll notice it. The last... Another frequent visitor to the mind is attachment, desire, wanting... Think for a minute, in just a brief minute, how much time you have invested in wanting, desiring, scheming, strategizing, finagling to get just a good sitting. Does it ever work? Not consistent enough to invest in it. And we see that over and over again that the effort and energy we put into wanting and desire and scheming and imagining and planning and as often as not, it doesn't bring the expected result. Yet when we find the mind in a desiring of attached state, we often think we have to actually get we actually have to do, we actually have to become what we're thinking in order to be at ease, to be relieved, to, to, to be satisfied. 
But that's not the only way to reach the end of suffering, the end of the suffering of attachment or of desire. The other way that mindfulness offers is to to be aware. To be aware, not so much the object of your desire or the behavior of your desire, but rather the feeling of desire. To be mindful of what it actually feels like in the body, in the mind, to be caught in wanting. Because that feeling will come to an end. It's unpleasant, but if you can endure it and persevere in knowing it, receiving it for as long as it's there, you will see it dissolve. You will see it leave the mind. You don't have to get it. You don't have to have it. You don't have to become it. Mindfulness will free you from all that excess activity. And the knowledge you gain about the nature of your own mind and what really brings a feeling of contentment, not just satisfaction, but contentment, is mindfulness. That knowledge, again, is invaluable. You can't read it in a book. You can't get it from a book. You actually have to do it on your cushion or in your experience, walking, talking, whatever it is, is to see the end of the suffering of desire by not fulfilling it and acting it out, but by seeing that it goes away. So these are the visitors to the mind, the defilements, sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, desire, in all of their forms, the very place to establish your mindfulness. Being willing to engage them, to acknowledge them, to recognize them, and to know and to gradually, gradually, develop the stamina to outlast them. The reward is self-knowledge, liberating self-knowledge, and the confidence that the practice works, that you can do the practice, and that the, the result of practice, freedom from suffering, Let's sit for a moment. This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is all-pervading, radiant, absolute reality. It is uncreated. It is a jewel beyond all price. This pure mind is a jewel beyond all price. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.
This talk was given by Stephen Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on November 7, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.